Welcome to Broken Office Chair, a new podcast produced by Alternatives, a Chicago-based nonprofit. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Basiel Cantora. A Chicago native and first-generation Salvadorian Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to talk frankly about the most important issues facing the nonprofit sector. A quick listener note, this episode contains language that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. For more information, check out the show's description. This week, Bessie's guest is Ayoka Samuels. Ayoka is the Vice President of Bitwise Industries. When this was recorded, she was the Executive Director of the Serve Illinois Commission. She has been a leader in the nonprofit and public sectors for over 25 years. In today's episode, Bessie and Ayoka will be discussing how to be a POC-centered nonprofit and their experiences being Black and Brown women, respectively in nonprofit leadership. We'll cover topics like Eurocentric standards of professionalism in the workplace, what it means to be middle class, and power dynamics in the workplace. Thank you for joining me, Ayoka. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're at today and what you do? Sure. I am the executive director for the Serve Illinois Commission on Volunteerism and Community Service. We are a statewide organization that is a part of the Illinois Department of Human Services. And so you have a long history and experience in leadership, right? When you hear this topic, what comes up for you? Oh, wow. A lot, actually. My experience, you know, being a Black woman in leadership and nonprofit for so long in my journey. Mm -hmm. I also think about how racism in particular has impacted the path, the career path or whatever for other women that I've seen that may have come before me. And I also think about the women that are like our contemporaries Mm -hmm. and then also those women that are coming after us. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I assist them so that they don't have the same pitfalls or they don't hit those same pitfalls, or they can just move forward faster than I did. I really feel very strongly that the things that I felt that I had to wait my turn for, there's value in that. But in some instances, I don't want the people who are, you know, the up and coming leaders to have to wait for anything. You said pitfalls. What kinds of things come up? One of the things is is the expectation that there will be fairness because there won't be. And so I think, you know, in terms of people being better prepared for the situation that they're about to go into in terms of leadership, wherever that is, you know, coordinator, manager, specialist, or what have you, executive director, board member, you should expect for some things to be totally unfair. And so if you kind of walk into that, or at least understanding that, also being positive, you know, be positive about everything if you can, but then your feelings won't get hurt as much, right? Right? Because it's, there are things that you can kind of expect. So it's kind of like how Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, you know, in this moment, while she is going through these Senate confirmation hearings, there are things that 
they're preparing her for because they totally expect for there to be resistance to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is what we all should be preparing for. It's funny, we just recently launched this leadership program at Alternatives. And one of the reasons for the why now, right? I've been here for a couple of years, has been that we are majority POC in leadership. Right. And in Chicago, you kind of take this for granted because Mm. you do see a lot more black and brown faces when you go out. Our the majority still seems to be white in leadership, right? True. But you encounter more of us in these Mm. spaces. And what I said, there's a ton of research now around how little professional development is put into people of color, right? And what I said to them is that personally, I'm invested in this because I'm doing a lot of the trainings myself, right? And you know this as an ED, that trying to create the time to do that right. is a challenge, it's a right? Challenge. Right. But I said, I was like, the reality of the situation is that as a person of color, this job is just going to be harder. You're going to be less credible. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to be more credentialed. You're going to have to be more knowledgeable. You're going to have to work harder. And you're not going to get credit in the same way your peers will get credit. And there is a thing that you have to do with your feelings get left in another room and you can cry and drink about it with your friends Mm -hmm. later. But when you show up, you show up knowing all of this. And it's kind of funny for me to say, because we're in leadership positions. So Mm -hmm. why would I say that? Right. Right. We're already in these seats. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you raising that because it is harder. It's harder. Right. And so you, you know, you're dealing with the woman factor many times. Like you're just talking about, you know, being a black woman, you're dealing with the, with that. You're dealing with being black, right? You're dealing with, in some instances, class issues, mm-hmm. you know, because that's something that we have to deal with within our own culture as African-American folks. You know, sometimes that class issue comes into play. Respectability politics. <laughs> yeah, well, that, but then also it's interesting because, you know, I grew up middle class. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in the nonprofit space, we just challenge no matter what it is, where, whatever your background is, you always get challenged, right? <laughs> so there's a whole thing about that right, <laughs> nonprofit. You know, right. And I would get challenged and it was crazy because there was one job a while back that I had applied for that was run by primarily white folks. When I was in the interview and all the people who interviewed me were white. and They told me I didn't get the job. Wait for it. Because I, because of my middle class background in Chicago, I didn't really have the understanding of working with poor black folks on Southside Chicago. A group of white people. That's exactly what happened. Told you a black woman. That is exactly what happened. Right. And so, I, you know, I was just so taken back by that. I said to them, thank you so much. And, and that's all I said. But in the, you know, my mind, the rest of that sentence was, thank you so much, because there's no way I could work for you all. Because it tells me and it shows me that you have a serious lack of understanding of all of this, right? And it discounts what, in this particular case, what my parents, had to do and had to go through so that 
we could have a so-called middle class existence. Right. You know, and so it's like, well, how do we get punished for that? Mm-hmm. Why are we getting punished? Because, you know, my parents who are both gone, you know, just didn't want me and my brothers and sisters to have some of the same experiences that they did. And then also, you have no idea how I understood that I was black was because, and what that meant politically, Mm -hmm. because I grew up in a white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And when I was six years old, I don't know if you have to bleep this out, but you know, Five. Okay. Warning. Yeah. Content warning on the podcast. <laughs> okay. I was five years old and went to the only other people of color that were in my school were my two, my older brother and my sister, one Indian young girl and a Mexican boy. And on my second day of kindergarten, one of the kids in the class calls me a nigger. I tell my teacher, my teacher says to me, don't be a tattletale. Oh, she sure did. There is so much to unpack just in that she story. She sure did. I was five years old. And that's the thing that a lot of people, white people in particular, don't understand when they get uncomfortable talking about race. Mm-hmm. It's never an option if you're right, anything if you're but never, white. That's right. Yeah. And so in me living this middle class existence, which doesn't protect you from being a black woman it in this country. It does not, clearly. But, you know, and also what middle class means to black people and people of color is very different from what it means for white folks. Right. It just means we didn't struggle very as different. hard. Yeah, I'm like, but, you know, you know, we are two paychecks away from being broke. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference because we don't have, you know, in terms of what we how much our pay is, is low. Mm-hmm lower than, you know, other folks, white men in particular, but also we don't have, we have not amassed the wealth that white people in this country have. Right. So I actually need my job. Right. We and just talked is, about this when, right before we got the, the student loan. Yeah. It's like, oh, I need my job. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, and thank God that I have some tools in my toolkit going back to my parents and to be clear, other people that are in my life that were adults at the time that helped us get to where we are so that we can do something different. Imagine if we didn't have that. Right. So for someone to say that with a straight face that I don't have the understanding because of my middle-class background. But let's talk about that. Right. Because they probably went on to hire another black person it did fit their stereotype stereotype. of what a black person is yeah and the amount of harm that that creates and so one Mm -hmm. of the things that we're not talking about as much in this push for racial equity and hiring people of color into leadership positions is what environment are we bringing people of color into and are we actually set up to support people of color in these environments By and large, no, you have to be really intentional in order to make that happen. And you have to be intentional and you have to do it consistently all the time. It's not necessarily a piece where it's like a one and done, right? This is not a project, Mm -hmm. you know, what worries me about this moment that we're in the so-called racial reckoning, so-called push for racial equity the social call push for diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace is that what worries me is whether or not it's the flavor of the month. 
you know, being a nonprofit, you know, as you said earlier, for a long time, and looking at what the funders in the philanthropic community, what they felt was a priority at the time, right? And it's so interesting because the, the term is priority, which on some level means we're going to move away from this at some point, mm -hmm. you know? So, and not only just the philanthropic community, but the funding community in general, people thought was important at one point, you know, it's like, oh, we got to deal with drugs. Mm -hmm. And then you stop hearing about it. Oh, we got to deal with AIDS. What are we going to do about that? And which is hilarious because people don't talk about AIDS anymore as if it's, it's gone. just disappeared. Mm -hmm. It hasn't. Right. But you probably remember that like everything, like with AIDS mm -hmm. everywhere. We had to deal with HIV. What are we going to do? You got to make sure the kids don't get it. Everybody had to take the test. People were freaking out about it. It's kind of funny because, you know, people kind of freaking out about taking tests now about, uh, <laughs> something, else. about, some, about something else. I wonder and I worry if it's the flavor of the month, if it's what's making people feel good in the moment, and then they just move on to something else. And to, and, and to be clear, I am talking about everybody, not just, you know, the, the majority of white folks that live in this country, but everybody. Mm -hmm. When is it no longer going to be a priority? And this is one of the things that we've been talking about here internally, because what's the saying? Not everybody looks like us is for us kind there's of thing. That too. And so there's mm -hmm. been this huge, what, what was that quote? Something about inequity and white people reading, going to book clubs. And so there's yeah. been this push for representation, but a representation in a way that's Operable to the majority, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, again, that stereotype. And then what does representation mean? What does a supportive and inclusive environment mean? Does it still mean that you got to hire a person of color? You got to hire a woman of color to this position, but I still have to show up a specific way. Mm -hmm. Because if I don't show up a specific right. way, do I now offend you? Was mm -hmm. I aggressive? Mm -hmm. Did you not like my appearance? Did I not mm -hmm. carry myself the way? And when you said that really offensive thing, do I have to smile and laugh at your joke, right? right? Or is, is me right. calling you out on that microaggression problematic? Problematic, right. Right? And all mm -hmm. these things that this consistent tape, I feel like that plays through my head every day when I'm hyper aware mm -hmm. of all of my behavior and mm -hmm. how it comes through, mm -hmm. that other people are not playing in the same way unless you're in this position. Right, right. You know, when you said the piece around appearance, so for your listeners, I have locks, I had, I am a darker skinned black person and I started growing my locks and I do not call them dreadlocks because I do not dread them. I love them. So they are locks. I started growing my locks in 2000. I was wearing my hair naturally. It's all of it's natural. That's it might be a different, you know, conversation by the way. But Anyway, I didn't use chemicals in the same way to straighten my hair. I didn't straighten my hair. I started doing that in the mid-90s. And without a doubt, because of the way that I chose to wear my hair, there were a lot of different jobs and different opportunities, dating, you name it, that I was passed over for because I have locks. Now, it's kind of cool to have locks, right? So everybody's <laughs> like, oh, everybody wants locks, this other thing. But then people thought it was dirty. So people would be like, do you wash your hair? I'm like, yeah, do you? You know, it's such a crazy question for me to ask you. Yes, it was, because I asked you. Now you hear how crazy that is, right? <laughs> so yes, I wash my hair. I have black hair. I don't have to wash it every day. Some people do. It's just the way that it comes out of your head, right? 
And so then people thought, you know, and at that time, you know, it's like the whole marijuana thing was like, ah, right. And so I automatically smoked weed. I automatically was dirty. Some people automatically thought that I was Jamaican. I've never been to Jamaica, you know, <laughs> and I was just weird. Right. And it was a lot to go through that. But that was my decision because the way that if I straightened my hair for me, the texture for my hair was not going to work. My hair was falling out mm -hmm. because I was straightening it. It didn't work for me. You know, and you have other black folks where they can straighten their hair and it's fine. But it wasn't the case for me. Right. And I didn't want to put braids in my hair all the time because it was breaking off my hair. Although I did have that style for a while, too. So I had to make this decision about what was in the best interest of my health in terms of my hair so that it could come. I could wear it in the way that it came out of my head and it cost me in some ways, you know, and even in some instances what some folks would even say to me there in my own family, you know, because of their lack of understanding. Right. So I'm glad and happy, you know, 22 years later that it's more acceptable and it's seen as professional, which is kind of funny, Can't but it's still, quotes for yeah, sorry <laughs> listeners, I did the air quotes, but I am aware that in some instances it's still not mm -hmm. seen as professional. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, people who work in banks, you know, they could not wear their hair in braids or with natural hair for a long time. And in some instances, it's probably still the case. I got in trouble for it 15 years ago. I had, really? I had braids in my hair. I worked the teller line and my manager told me that that was not professional. And my boyfriend at the time, who was a who worked in HR was like, that's racism. That's right. Tell her, tell her if she says something to you about a, your braids again, it's racism. And what's in, I could not fix my lips to say that I was terrified. Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm not saying that to her, yeah. but what was really funny is that my customers loved it. Oh, uh, and I worked in the white it. suburb and they all thought they were like, Oh, it's so nice. They're like, cause I also had highlights in my hair. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they were like, Oh, oh they look cool, good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's when she kind of, cause she kept being like, who's going to take you seriously with mm -hmm. these friends? And people mm -hmm. were actually talking to me more because of wow. that. So that's mm -hmm. what ended up keeping them in. But that's initially I got in trouble, but even that process, right. Me being a young professional, I was scared to bring up that this was a fundamental right for me to wear my hair any kind of way I want to. Your head, right? Anywhere you want, <laughs> anywhere you want to. I mean, so yeah. So just in terms of appearance, that's definitely something that why do we? I'm just talking about black people in particular right now. Why do we even have to think about it? You know. So it's like it's about style. But then it also, this is how it comes out of my head. And I think that's the dis distinction, right? Because I've heard people make the argument that, like, we all have to think about clothes when we're talking about professionalism, right? But I think there's a very big difference between sure, preference and what you're talking about. Right. Like, you're trying yeah. to fight your hair to do what? To not look black. Right. And that's, and that is a thing to do, you know? And so, and, and that, and that, just so you're clear, I feel like, you know, for black women, however we want to do our hair, it is fine. Mm -hmm. If you want to straighten it, braid it, you know, lock it up, chop it off, 
wear a wig, whatever it is you want to do, it is all good. Because here's the thing, we actually look good at all of it. <laughs> all of it. We can rock it all, right? We can fade it, all of that. So that's cool. So I just want to just, you know, say that. And some people think that because I wear my hair natural, then I'm like anti-non-natural hair. I'm like, nothing is further from the truth. But the thing is, is just that if it's a piece where there's spoken or unspoken preferences that are actually high risk for you because of the way that your the way that your hair comes out of your head, therein lies the problem. Right. And that's and that's not cool. The clothes are also a situation too. This is people say you we all have to wear certain stuff. Yeah, but genetically, sometimes the way that clothes from clothes from J. Crew do not look the same on me <laughs> as it does for other people. Now, some people will say, well, you know, Michelle Obama wears J. Crew. Yeah, she said that. And I'm sure she did. Probably now she probably doesn't. Probably gets all her clothes made. Who knows? But she would even know what I was talking about, right? Because it's not, it's, it's the, the clothes look different on us. You know, yeah. you have those moments in your professional career where you just know you should have done it differently. I had one in which I had to tell a young black woman that she was dressed inappropriately. Mm -hmm. And she said to me that if it were a stick figured white girl wearing that same outfit, I would have never said that to her. Mm -hmm. And she is absolutely, absolutely. correct. Mm -hmm. And it is a thing. And it's again, another example of something we shouldn't have to think about, right. but that is just the fact. Mm -hmm. I think that goes into the thought that, you know, for us, we are hypersexualized. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. and so we can't go anywhere without somebody sexualizing us. As women, it definitely is women of color, right? And I just want to make a clarification point here. This hypersexualized is not about people wanting to have sex with you, but it's attributing yes. a certain behavior, behavior to, to you. you. Right. Because of this. That's correct. Mm -hmm. That's correct. I mean, so here's another thing that when you're going into the workplace, be it nonprofit, corporate, or whatever, that you have to sit here and think about. So you're adding time to your prep day where, you, you know, before you go to work the night before or whatever. And then sometimes you think, OK, I didn't prep all together. You put on your clothes and you like wonder if that's too provocative. <laughs> right. Right. And so it's is these it's these messages and things that you're hearing that they are running through your mind when you're making your decision about what to put on for work. Right. And so that has more going into it than everyone else. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, guys also, we, we call it like the guy's uniform. So like they can wear like the same stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this show that I'm watching. It's called The Gilded Age. Some people it's, it's, it's an interesting show on HBO. And one of the things I've noticed is, is that the women like their dresses are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it's like they are fantastic dresses to say the other day. And then the guys wear the same thing every day. It's both our blessing and a curse, I feel like. I'm like, I don't know. the same thing every day. You know, and I'm not mad at them about that. Well, maybe a little. But, you know, <laughs> but but just think about that. Yeah, to your point, you know, it's, it's, it's a blessing and it's a curse because, you know, 
there are certain things that they don't have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of envy you. I went to private school, so I always enjoyed the uniform for that reason. I was like, I, I want to have my modern day uniform today. Just wear, <laughs> the same just wear the same thing. Same thing every day and not think about it. But there is, it's so funny. I had an incident really early on and where I had a white peer reach out who was an executive director, had some concerns about the performance of one of my employees who's Mm -hmm. a black male. And she reached out to him directly to discuss these concerns. And this person has impact, it has the potential to have impact on the money that we receive. And so this poor person freaked out and wanted to talk to me about what he did wrong or whatever, right? Or what he didn't do wrong. What happened? Yeah. Right. And I was upset because I had a couple of questions. And one of them was, if I was a white executive director, would you have felt the need to reach around Around me to my employee? Because I don't, my white predecessor never experienced this with Mm -hmm. you to my knowledge. Right. So that was a little weird. But then I had this conversation with her and I was like, you know, I just want you to think about how it looks for you as a white executive director and a white program director to come a meeting with my black employee mm-hmm. with none of his people on this call. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, I don't think about race. I was like, mm-hmm. that must there be lies nice. Problem. That yeah. must be nice. And so as you were taking me through this, your, you know, your daily routine, mm-hmm. it's a thing that I'm always trying to highlight to people. It's that running tape. We don't get to not think about that because we have to think right. about perception at right. all, all times. times, right? Right. And we've talked about how much worse it is. It, 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 everything talks about like the perception of black women in particular, right? But then this nice, kind white person was like, I don't think, I don't think about it. I didn't even mm. consider it. It wasn't, mm. it. and I was like, can't do that. Yeah, you can. And, you know, and, and I think that it's important for people who, are working anywhere in the world, but let's just say United States. And if you're working with and around and for people of color, you have to think about it. You have to be intentional because, you know, if you say that you want to be able to have an equitable workplace, or if you want to be able to have a space where you are truly serving people of color or whatever it is, the group that you're serving, you have to be conscious of these things and you have to understand also the power dynamics. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that sometimes that people don't, they don't pick that up. They don't think about the power dynamic. I had one situation where I had a supervisor that was surprised that I didn't share with him some of the concerns that I had about some things. And I was in leadership and he was just like, oh, why didn't you tell me about this, this, and this? And I said, because you're my boss. And don't you understand this, the power dynamic? And he was like, well, yeah, but we've worked together so long. And I was like, yeah, and that whole time, you were my boss. So you have to understand the power dynamic that if you, as the person that is in power to some extent, in this particular situation, it is really incumbent upon you as the leader to raise it with me. And that's what I think that that's important for all leaders to understand that is that you understand the power dynamic. If you feel as though something is going on 
why would you wait for the person who reports to you or in your line of supervision or whatever to come to you? You know, because that person, there's risk involved. So it's important for you to, it could be very simple to say, you know, so how's it going? You know, how am I doing? That takes, that takes a lot of guts for someone who's in leadership to say how I'm doing. But, you know, it's, it's that power dynamic that you have to be aware of. And if you are a white person, you have to understand that there's a power dynamic regardless of what your role that is. That part. That, that part. Yeah. Yeah. It exists. We will always be questioned. People will always challenge our authority especially you're a person of color, you're a woman of color, people think that it is their duty to challenge your authority, to challenge your credentials, you know, or whatever else that it is, no matter what their role is. There is an irony right now for me. One of the hot topics at the moment is trauma-informed care. Yes. We're, we're hearing it everywhere. Everything. Alternatives has done a, a trauma-informed care and work for a long time before it was <laughs> cool, by the way. That's my little commercial for alternatives. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's um, true. <laughs> as we talk about trauma-informed care and modeling it in leadership, one of the things that you have to consider is that, like you said, that power dynamic that exists in society, period, when somebody is white and somebody is not. Hmm. And the safety place we go to when we're interacting with yeah. white people, because white people have historically created so much harm that we now have processes in place so that we always keep ourselves safe, whether it's emotional safety or physical safety. Right. right. And so when we're talking about trauma informed care and so many things that, you know, so much of what this field is pushing right now, the irony is not lost on me that some of that white leadership is not practicing that with their colleagues. You got to do it. They have to do it. It's so if, if this is what you say is important to you, show me and you have to practice it. But here's the thing. People of color have to practice it, too. You know, we are within a community of those who are being oppressed, right? But and do you so, think that's preservation? In some instances, yes. Uh-huh. Some instances, but even with that, in terms of preservation, we're not even aware that we're doing it. That's how racism works, because racism works when you're not being intentional. Racism works when you're just being yourself, you uh-huh. know, and to some extent, in terms of like your behaviors and things like that, it's, it's just so, so much a part of everything yes. we do you don't even realize that you're doing it, right? So yes, I think it's preservation on many different levels. It is. It really boils down sometimes to, well, yeah, preservation. Yeah, I'm like, yep, that's preservation also. No, because <laughs> we've, been taught, about. Yeah. we've been taught for a really long time mm-hmm. to basically work independently, get ahead, keep, yes. get, you know, do what's best for you and your family because nobody else mm-hmm. will look out for you, right? And so you, you get to that seat I always tell people, I was like, it's so hard to get to that seat at the table. Mm -hmm. There's so few slots. And then you get there and it's like, by any means necessary, I'm going to keep my seat right here. Right. Yeah. And and then, you know, and I'm sure as you've experienced too, it's like, you're like the person of color in the space. You like (laughs) represent everybody. 
And so, so it's like, I gotta say everything. Cause you know, like for black people will say, I don't want to put the race back. So, you know, I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Show up and, the wrong and way. Show up the wrong way. Mess it up for everybody else. You know, I don't want people, <laughs> I, I, I gotta make sure I don't code switch, you know, by accident, you know. Oh man, that. I did that. I, yeah. I did that. <laughs> Look, like, I, I have a real supportive <laughs> environment here, thankfully. But I was on a call with two board members who are white, and I don't remember what we were going back and forth about, but we'd been on a call for a while, and somebody must have told me to do something. And my response was, that's real cute. And then I was like, oh my God. And then the other board member, he's like, yeah, that's cute. He started like teasing it. And I was like, oh my God. But that could have gone really badly. It could have been perceived as disrespectful. Oh my God. He's so unprofessional. I mean, to your point, in the work that I have now, I have an opportunity to work with people from all over the country. And the folks from the South, they say, y'all. Mm -hmm. And everybody thinks that's so charming. And so I'm like, I can't say y'all. I can't do it. I can't say y'all. I can't do it because it's not charming when y'all comes out of my mouth. Right? <laughs> so I tried it. Right? I was like, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and just, you know, start using y'all because that sounds better. And I could tell that, you know, we were on the Zoom and some people were like, hmm, you know, but they couldn't say anything because here we have a person who came right behind me from Texas that said, and you know, y'all, blah, blah, blah. Right. And so for us, we're always thinking about how do I sound in addition to how do I look? How do I show up? And kind of being okay with, you know, this is how I talk. Now, here's the thing though. Because of us, we're not code switching. This is how we talk. You know, like all black people don't grow up the same way. We are mm -hmm. not monolithic, mm -hmm. right? And so you have some, some folks that have never had that experience where like for my folks, uh, my mother's side of the family, they come from the South, they come from Arkansas. So it's not that we're talking black, although we kind of are, but it's Southern. That's where we're from. So it's like when you go back to the South, the people, everybody's talking like that to some extent, right? So when you have people who are Black folks that are in Chicago, when most of our folks came up from Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, we talk like our grandparents because our grandparents talk like the folks that were in that area, you know, our great-grandparents or something like that. Then you have some people like on my father's side of the family they're my father's paternal side. They can't think of a time when they weren't in Chicago, mm -hmm. which is almost unheard of right. for black folks that live in Chicago. They were like, we weren't a part of a great migration. And so it's interesting because the way that they talk sounds different, you know, so we just can't cut a break, you know, <laughs> we, we, we can't. And so we, I think, you know, as people of color, when we're working with one another too, we have to be kind and we have to each other we have to be kind to ourselves and then for folks who as we were saying earlier you know that are not people of color white folks that work with us you know again just being intentional and they have to think about it if they do want to make a change we have to think about it because the way that racism works is it's counting on you not thinking about it Keep an eye out for next week's episode where Bessie will continue her conversation with Uyoka about being a woman of color in leadership.
to keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. It's produced and researched by me, Catherine Best, with special help from Monica George, Veronica Boone, and Dave of Mixed Media. Thanks for listening.